Hello, and welcome to this first segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show that looks at understanding and overcoming the rural-urban divide. I want to welcome all of our listeners on WEHC-FM Radio in Emory, Virginia, as well as our 1.6 billion listeners on podcast. Delighted to have all of you here today. I am your host, Anthony Flacavento. I am in southwestern Virginia at the WEHC studio, and I want to first give thanks to Ivy Shepard and the crew at WEHC Radio for taking this Luddite and helping him develop a program on radio focused on the divide. In this first introductory segment, it'll be a discussion of what this program is about, a little bit about the format, the guests that we'll be having, and what the purpose of the show is, what I hope and believe you will get from it. But I want to start by talking about me. So now this is a really exciting topic, and I can see thousands of people literally on the edge of their seats as they wait to hear about me. But honestly, I'm saying that because when you're talking about any subject, I think it's pretty important to know where the person talking is coming from. And that's even more the case when the subject is something as intense, uh, sometimes volatile, and almost always delicate as a discussion of the divides in our country. And we got a lot of them. So I'm going to just briefly tell you who I am so you can understand where I'm coming from and take me with a grain of salt if you need to. I live just outside of Abingdon, Virginia, in the far southwestern corner of the state. It's a part of Virginia that is much closer to West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, east Tennessee, and western North Carolina than it is to our own state capital of Richmond. It's not only closer in geography, but it's really closer in terms of the economy, the history, and the culture to those other Appalachian states than it is to much of the other state. This is where I've lived, farmed, and worked since the mid-80s. Now, my work has taken me to many other parts of the country, particularly rural areas, but that's my grounding. We've had a farm for about 30 years My wife and I bought an old tobacco farm, converted it to raising organic produce, and we've been doing that for the last three decades. I'm one of those farmers who's always had a day job, and it's always been a full-time job, and for the most part, focused on what some folks would call community development or rural development. Last few years, I've come to call it bottom-up development because I think it's a good contrast with trickle-down economics, and all of the problems that that has wrought. So that's been my life in a lot of respects, is farming on a small commercial scale while working towards building better, stronger, healthier, bottom-up economies and food systems. Economies that work better for people, that work better for local communities, that work better for the ecosystem. I've had some successes and some spectacular failures, but that's what I've been doing. I've also run for Congress a couple times. 
I was the Democratic nominee for the 9th District of Virginia, this far southwestern triangular corner of the state, in 2012 and again in 2018. Suffice to say, I didn't win, but those two experiences both illuminated my worldview and have helped color what I'm doing now. Over the last two years, I've been focused on this question of the rural-urban divide and what we can do about it, and that has led me to co-found with several other wonderful people the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, RUBY for short. You'll hear a lot about RUBY as the program progresses. A lot of our guests will have some connection to RUBY. And I should say, lastly, that my politics, for those of you that don't know, lean left, but not in a real typical way. I call myself a progressive, but over the last decade, I've really come to understand my politics more as being a rural progressive. And I kind of think that ain't just a semantic difference, but it's really a distinct way of seeing a progressive worldview. Now, when I say progressive, what that means fundamentally for me is that I think it's important to fight for the little guy, for the everyday person. I think that the role of government, most fundamentally of all, should be helping to level the playing field because there's a lot of power imbalances in our country. Always has been, but certainly acute and intense now. So that's when I call myself a progressive, that's what I'm saying most of all. That we as a people and our representatives in government should be trying to create a level playing field between Wall Street and Main Street, between the giant banks and the community banks, between the mega corporations and the independent small to mid-sized manufacturers and retail businesses, between big ag and family farmers. That's what I mean, that we take steps not to reinforce their power or not to sustain a status quo that works for the few but not so good for the many, but that in fact we actively work to create a level playing field so that the vast majority of Americans can have prosperous lives, dignified work, good opportunities to take care of themselves and their families. Now, to be a rural progressive, we'll talk about that in a later show. But in a nutshell, it means that I value and prioritize those same things that we just talked about, leveling the playing field for everyday people. But it also has a distinctly rural foundation, let's say, one that is rooted in the countryside and in the land base. One way to think of it is a rural progressive is a progressive who's comfortable with a chainsaw, a tractor, and a 22. That's a little bit simplistic, but that begins to give you a bit of an idea. So enough about me already. I do hope that helps give you a sense of where I'm coming from. What about this show? Let's talk a little bit about Two Worlds, One Country, beginning with the title. Why did I pick that title, that oh-so-clever title? It's because, honestly, 
for an awful lot of people on both ends of the political spectrum. For liberals and for conservatives, for city folks and for country folks, for the highly educated professional class and blue-collar working class. One thing we share is we're kind of baffled by the other side. And we sort of see that we've come to live in two very different worlds. Two worlds that have really different histories, distinct cultures, norms, mores, real different ways of talking and talking about things. And so it's almost a sense that we live side by side, or at least we live in the same nation, but it's like two completely different worlds. I think this is a reality, and we have to grapple with it. If you believe, as I do, that we really are one nation, and we really are all in this together as one country, the United States of America, then you got to come to grips with and tackle the fact that we might be one country, but our worldviews are distinct and our frame of reference is very different. So two worlds, one country. Why is this important and why this show now? Well, I'm going to start with a couple of stories to explain, I think, the importance of this. Now, these two stories are both political in nature, and believe me, a lot of our program will be political in nature, but it's deeper and broader than politics because over the course of the many weeks of this program, I'd say probably 25 years of continuous weekly programming, we intend to go beyond the Simpsons, for goodness sakes. But seriously, I think what you'll hear across Two Worlds, One Country's programming is a lot about economics, a lot about culture, a lot about politics. It'll be broad. It'll be a holistic perspective. But let me start with two political stories. Back in 2019, about a month and a half after I had lost the 2018 congressional election, I happened to have car trouble while I was up in the New River Valley of Virginia, in Christiansburg, a couple hours from my home. And I took the car into a shop there. And a couple hours later, I was waiting on the repairs. This was a pretty big shop. And what they did was they announced the name of the client when your car was ready. So over the intercom came Flocavento. And I went to the service desk to get my car. And the fellow looked at me and said, Flocavento, are you the guy that ran for Congress? Yep, that's me. And the next thing he said was, I really liked a lot about you. I liked that you were a farmer. I thought we needed more farmers in Congress. You seemed like a good guy. But he continued, but I could never vote for a Democrat. And then he laughed. Here's another story. In a process that Ruby used last year to interview candidates who ran in rural districts, something that led to the publication of our recent report, Can Democrats Succeed in Rural America?, one of the candidates we interviewed shared a story. 
about going to a small home, a trailer, I believe, and striking up a conversation with a young man. Young man had some disabilities. He spent a good bit of time at the door talking with the candidate who had uh, stopped there as part of his door-to-door canvassing. And over the course of a good 20 to 30 minutes, the candidate listened first and foremost. And then once he understood the man's situation and priorities, they started to talk and try to find common ground. The candidate left and went to the next door. A couple of days later, back in that same community, this candidate happened to be at the local Farm Bureau meeting. And what do you know? That young man was there. In fact, he was the secretary of the local Farm Bureau chapter. Now, if you know anything about Farm Bureau, it's mostly farmers, and it tends to run pretty conservative. And that was the case with this Farm Bureau chapter as well. But before the candidate could even start talking, this young man chimed up and said, I want you to know that this fellow stopped at my door and he listened to me and we talked and we had a real conversation. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to vote for him even though he's a Democrat. Those two stories illustrate in a small way how the divide has sorted us in a number of respects, by party, for sure. And that that party divide is one piece of the larger rural-urban divide. But it's a big piece. So let's talk a little bit about that. It wasn't that long ago that places like southwest Virginia had relatively equal representation at the state and federal levels. Back in the era of Congressman Rick Boucher, he was a Democrat in the 9th District for 28 years, and during that time, there were several Democrats in Virginia's State House and State Senate. That was not uncommon in rural America until about 15 years ago. 15 to 20, depending on the place. Now the situation is very different. Now when we talk rural, we're talking about, for all intents and purposes, one party in the vast, vast majority of rural places. When Bill Clinton ran in 1992 for presidency, he garnered 47% of the rural votes across the country, pretty close to half. In 2020, Joe Biden got 32%, and that was an improvement over the 2016 run of Hillary Clinton. In the 2022 midterms in aggregate, 30% of rural voters went Democrat. That means 7 out of 10 rural people now reliably vote Republican and do not vote Democrat. There are similar trends across class, where we've seen the Democratic Party lose working-class voters steadily now for three decades, with similar numbers sorting as Democrats and Republicans. And as we'll discuss in future programs, 
It isn't just white working class people or white rural people. Because in fact, Hispanic, Native American, and African American voters are also moving away from the Democratic Party. Now, you may not be a Democrat yourself. You might be an independent or a Republican. But I would ask the question, does it help rural communities and our nation when one party is so dominant? Is it good for the prosperity of local communities or for the well-being of the nation as a whole when you have one party rule across the vast majority of our country's geography? I would say not. Now, this division is real. It's substantive. There are real differences between us across class, across educational levels, and certainly across geography. But it's also true that there's more in common than we often believe. And in fact, there is an organization called More in Common that works towards trying to tackle the divide and overcome it, the many different divides. More in Common recently did a national survey. And one of the things that they discovered in this survey was that people who identify as Republicans have extreme misconceptions about what Democrats believe. And people who identify as Democrats have extreme misconceptions about what Republicans believe. Here's two examples. The question was posed, and this was a survey of 2,000 people nationwide, to Republicans. The question was posed, do you think that Democrats value the teaching of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in our schools? Do you think that Democrats believe that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution advances freedom and equality and that that should be taught in schools? Republicans thought about 45% thought that Democrats believe that. In fact, 92% of Democratic respondents believe that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution should be taught and their contributions to freedom and equality. Double the number that Republicans believed. And the flip side of that was when Democrats were asked, should schools teach about slavery and Jim Crow as part of America's history? Democrats in the survey thought that only 32% of Republicans would support this idea, one-third, when in fact 83% of Republican respondents said they did. So this is where we're at. We have both real differences and gaps, and we have perception differences and gaps. Both of them sustain this divide. Now, why is this important? Well, number one, our politics is barely functional. With such high levels of polarization and with such vehemently negative opinions, often flowing from both sides, although I would be one who says not equally so, but with such 
intense levels of difference and disagreement, it's nearly impossible to get stuff done. We'll talk in a future show about some of the programs that have been passed during the first two years of the Biden administration, programs that programs and new initiatives that are really good for working folks and for rural areas. But the truth is that it's been tough to get most legislation passed because of the divide. So that's one issue. We just aren't able to address the really tough issues we need to address as a country, whether we're talking about the tremendous wealth inequality or we're talking about climate change and environmental issues or we're talking about a stagnant economy that leaves most Americans behind. You can't do much if you hate each other. So that's one problem. A second is in rural communities themselves. Now, there are good Republican legislators, particularly at the state level, that have the interests, or at least some of the interests, of some of the people in rural areas as their priority. But overall, the dominance of one party means that it's really tough to have a debate on issues, that it's really tough to look at a different way forward, whether you're talking about economic issues, you're talking about opioid policy or anything else. So it hurts the potential that rural areas themselves can be more prosperous, more fair, more open, and better for the vast majority of people. And you know what? It hurts urban areas, too, because like it or not, those of us who live in cities and suburbs utterly depend on the stuff that comes from the countryside. I'm a big fan and an advocate for urban farms and urban parks and the like. But the truth of the matter is the vast majority of our food, our fiber, our building materials, our energy and our clean water come from the countryside. They come from rural areas, and they always will, at least the bulk. Now, if the rest of us depend on a healthy countryside, a functioning economy where those essential resources reside, isn't it in all of our interests to be sure that those same places are prosperous, that people want to stay there, that young people want to stay or settle there to ensure that our food and farming, our forests, our lakes and rivers, and everything else are sustained for many generations to come. For those urban listeners and suburban listeners who maybe think the countryside is just hopeless, it's just a wasteland of people who don't get it, my goodness, you better look down at your plate and see what you're eating. When you flip on your switch to get your lights or your heat, you better think about where that came from. When you put down your hardwood floor, take stock of the trees that gave it to you. This is what we need to do. So we, we need prosperous countryside to sustain our lives wherever we live and to have a really prosperous, well-functioning countryside, we need to overcome this divide. I'll wrap up our intro program 
with a little discussion of what we will be doing. So, first of all, we will be talking about both the underlying causes, what got us into this mess, and solutions. Now, let me say that when I say solutions, I don't mean one-size-fits-all silver bullets. There aren't any. What we're really talking about when I say solutions to the rural-urban divide is productive steps we can take, proven strategies that help whittle away at the divide. Because overcoming it is going to take much more than one or two different things, and it's going to take much more than one or two tries. It's a long-term process. But that's what we'll be focused on, both the underlying problems and really getting a good understanding of them, and then based on that understanding, what we can do differently to begin to change the conditions that led to the divide. That'll be a theme throughout the program. Now, we'll do that primarily through interviews with some of the leading thinkers and doers in the country. That's who makes up the organization that I've been very privileged to help start, the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. And we'll reach out to people who are key partners of Ruby, as well as people who are not directly involved, but all of them are grappling with this question. Some of them do it as writers and sociologists and political scientists. Some of them do it knocking on doors in both urban and rural areas to take the pulse of people, understand folks, build a broader base of engagement in our civic life and our political culture. Some do it as rural organizers and community organizers tackling the issues that are plaguing local communities. Whether they're organizers, whether they're political activists, whether they're thinkers and writers, I can say with great confidence that you are going to hear some of the smartest, most dedicated folks in the country coming onto our program. The last thing I'll say is that one other theme you'll hear, and you might want to tighten your belt for this one, is that the primary focus in talking about the problem and in discussing potential solutions or steps in the right direction, the primary focus will be inward. This program, Two Worlds, One Country, will not be a both-and program in the sense of, well, we're not so good at this, but neither are they. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about what we consider, from my political perspective, the negative influences, the destructive media voices. They're out there. They're real. They're very important. And I wish they weren't. But we're going to focus on us. We're going to focus on liberals, progressives, rural progressives, Democrats, social justice advocates, environmental advocates. We're going to focus on us, where we've gone wrong, and what we can do differently. Because ultimately, it matters very little whether or not we put blame, equally deserved blame on both sides. What matters is that we get to a better place where debate is possible and productive, where politics can change, where the economy can be refashioned in a way that it works for most people. 
That's the goal of Ruby, and that's the, the goal of this program, to make a small contribution in that direction. We'll be doing this every Thursday evening at 6.30 on WEHC, and the program will be repeated every Sunday afternoon at 1.30. WEHC is a wonderful local community FM radio station based in Southwest Virginia, solar-powered, by the way, and a program that, while it carries plenty of NPR national programming, features, much like WMMT in Whitesburg, Kentucky, community voices. Community voices on political issues, on local town and county development issues, on arts, culture, theater, and music. We're privileged and excited to be part of that lineup, and at the same time, very excited to be broadcasting Two Worlds, One Country as a podcast. Looking forward to our first program next week, where I'll be interviewing Dr. Kathy Kramer, the author of The Politics of Resentment. Kathy is one of the co-founders of Ruby and a remarkable voice for understanding the rural-urban divide. Hope you'll join us. Hope you'll spread the word. We only have 1.6 billion listeners at this point. I hope you'll help us get it up to 2 billion. Thanks so much, and talk next time.